It's Paris, 1792. The revolution is at its most chaotic and most violent. You have a few choices. A. Make a break for it. B. Put on a tricolor cockade and keep your head down in order to keep your head on. Or C. Plan a heist to steal the crown jewels. Which would you choose? Welcome to this episode of Paris Gone By, the Parisian history podcast for the curious traveler. I'm Michelle, your host and guide to the Paris of the past. And allergy sufferer, if you can't hear that in my voice. Today, we're going to explore a niche museum in the heart of Paris, L'Hôtel de la Marine. It opened last year, the summer of 2021, and admittedly, it's a bit niche. The Centre de Monuments Nationaux, or the CMN, has restored the space to its 18th century pre-revolution grandeur. But what exactly was this building before the revolution? The name, L'Hôtel de la Marine, basically means Hotel of the Navy, and it was the site of the headquarters of the Ministry of the Navy from the revolution in 1789 until the Navy moved to the consolidated headquarters for all military branches in 2015. Left with a giant building and a very prominent location on the Place de la Concorde, the French government, in my opinion, did the right thing and created a museum on the lower levels, complete with restaurants and a gift shop. I do love a good gift shop. But the building didn't start life as a military headquarters. It was actually the home of the Garde Mobile de Caronne, or the movable goods of the French crown, where the crown kept all of its stuff. It's basically a gigantic closet. Everything from furniture and wall hangings to objets d'art, and you guessed it, the crown jewels. There were also really prosaic things like cooking utensils and linens. The building is part of a pair of buildings, actually, designed to be the north end of the, at the time, the new Place Louis XV. This square was designed to have these twin buildings to the north, the Tuileries Gardens to the east, the Seine to the south, and the Champs-Élysées to the west, which was at that time still pretty much a forest. The centerpiece of this square would be a very noble and very large statue of Louis XV himself. The statue actually has a fantastic story, which we'll get to it another day. But the square itself was rounded out with some water features and the new Rue Royale, which runs between these two buildings and gives a direct view of the Madeleine Church. At the time, this was an anticipatory view, since basically only the foundations were complete by the time of the Revolution, and the full church wasn't completed until the 1840s. One piece of interesting trivia with these buildings is that only the facades were designed for the square by Louis XV's architect. It was then an entirely separate venture to complete the buildings behind the facades. They were up by the 1763 inauguration of the statue, however. The rest of our building didn't really get going until 1765-ish and was originally going to house the crown's goods and other businesses, But two years later, it was decided that the entire building would become the royal closet. It didn't just supply Versailles, however, which is what we think of, but also all of the other Paris region royal palaces, such as Compagne, Fontainebleau, Marly, Choisy, Trianon, which I think is the one at the Versailles, Rambouillet, Saint-Germain-en-Laye, and Montreuil. 
Some of these are still available for public tours like Fontainebleau. Some are now private properties and some unfortunately are now gone completely. The other building uh, on the square, of course, ended up with the more famous occupant, the Hotel Crillon. It occupies one of four lots that the building was split into at the time of construction. The Crillon is on the western side. The middle two lots are owned by the Automobile Club of France. And the lot facing Rue Royale and our building is a privately owned residence. That's a heck of a real estate investment. In addition to storing and maintaining the goods, there were also apartments for the intendants or the stewards in charge of the whole operation and public exhibition spaces, which are now considered the first museum of decorative arts in France. These public galleries included rooms for the crown jewels, for the furnishings, and for an arms and armor collection. While it is natural, I think, for us today to go see crown jewel collections and other objects of value at museums, I feel like this display of wealth and power was maybe a little bit out of touch uh, at that time, personally, in hindsight. For the next 22 years, the building and its valuable contents would go about their business. Valuable objects are stored, they're repaired, they're displayed. Then in 1789, things started to go a little sideways. On July 13th, 1789, the would-be stormers of the Bastille decided to hit the Grand Moble, the royal closet, first, wanting to get their hands on that arms and armor collection. Among the weapons, they are believed to have taken several very ornate cannon gifted to Louis XIV by the King of Siam. Supposedly, these very royal cannon were the first to be fired upon the Bastille, though there doesn't seem to be any hard evidence either way. It is a delicious irony, though, if that's true. The collection would remain in limbo for a while, actually, with some objects being sold off for cash and others destroyed so that they could get the precious metals out of them. In 1791, an inventory was ordered by the assembly. The crown jewel collection was intact, but the gold collection had some inconsistencies. The intendant at the time, Thierry de Ville d'Avray, is suspected and kept under watch at this point. Over a year later, in September 1792, mass executions, fears of Prussian invasion, and a general breakdown of societal order has resulted in this climate of fear and, for some, temptation. The Intendant was finally arrested the month prior, so in August of 1792, and a new man, Jean-Bernard Rousteau, is named as director of the furniture storage. Poor Intendant David d'Avray would be one of those massacred in what is now known as the September Massacres, yet this still doesn't exonerate him from the events that followed. Under this new management, the place is promptly looted, not just over the course of one night, but over the course of several. Incredibly, it seems that the number of thieves kept increasing as time went by, and they were partying and enjoying themselves by the time they were finally discovered, accidentally, by a troop of National Guard who were walking by and noticed the commotion on the night of September 16th. How did this happen? How did it go on so long? Well, it appears that the thieves climbed up to the first floor, or second floor in America, balcony, broke a pane of glass, and created a hole in the shutters that's still visible to this day. They then opened up the window and began helping themselves. 
Interestingly, the cabinets holding the jewels did not show any sign of being forced open, which just adds to the mystery of this particular case. The fact that this robbery went on for several nights is astonishing and has created a slew of theories as to the who and the why and the how. A number of the thieves were caught, including the ringleader, Paul Miette. Several were executed in the Place de Révolution, formerly Place Louis XV, in the shadow of the building that they had robbed. Paul Miette and several others incredibly were released. A large portion of the stolen jewels were in fact recovered within two years. However, most famously, the the big blue, Le Bleu de Roir, was never recovered by the French state. The fact that Miette was released, despite being the acknowledged ringleader, of course screams conspiracy. One of the more prominent theories is that the revolutionary leader Danton was in cahoots with Miette, or others, to steal the jewels to pay off the Prussian Duke of Brunswick, who lost the Battle of Valmy to France just a few days after the theft. The loss caused the Prussians to retreat, leaving France to consume itself in peace. Most historians, however, argue that Prussia lost due to ineptitude and other factors, not bribery. The Duke of Brunswick is reportedly one of the wealthiest people in Europe at that time. One less elaborate theory is that the new director of the repository and his friends had decided to take advantage of their new position and the continued refusal of the government to provide them with more guards. They just conveniently didn't notice all the noise and commotion over nights, (laughs) multiple nights. You can see that Gallic shrug as they tell the story, can't you? Or was it Miette, a known and convicted criminal, and his cronies had decided to take the risk and temporarily win the jackpot? Did Marie Antoinette plot to get her jewels back even though she was heavily guarded at the prison? There's even a theory that the British helped with the plot. Was the Scarlet Pimpernel involved? Inquiring minds want to know. One other theory is that in the events leading up to the arrest of the last royal intendant de Ville d'Avre, that at least the most valuable items were embezzled out of the city and possibly the country, maybe to the Netherlands and then on to the UK, before the larger theft even happened. The chain of custody at one point has boxes of jewels being handed around from the intendant through several other government officials before being returned to the hotel for safekeeping. They were supposedly at that point sealed and documented as never having been opened. Did de Ville d'Avre pull a fast one? Did one of the other officials, the Intendant, died in the September massacres? Another official later committed suicide after a very rough ride in the revolution. One survived all the hoopla and died in 1797 at the age of 65. And one was executed in the revolution in 1794. The longest lasting made it only five years later and died of old age still in Paris, so it seems that they gained little to nothing from it if they were involved. Which theory do you prefer? I think it's hard to choose. I'm tempted to go with the obvious one. Experienced criminals taking advantage of a situation. But the fact that Miette got off is difficult to ignore. The least likely option for me is the attempt to bribe the Duke of Brunswick, The sense of personal honor common at the time would have made this deeply unlikely on the Duke's part, let alone the other more likely reasons that he lost the battle. 
However, there were plenty of reasons for the government to quietly pawn off the jewels. They were cash-strapped and struggling to maintain control, for one. Did Miet gain freedom because he was part of a larger conspiracy? Or did he reveal that the boxes were open or empty? Considering the tenor of the times, he was lucky he wasn't silenced, if either of those is the case. Speaking of the missing jewels, the most famous of them all, of course, is the Big Blue. However, most of us don't know it as that. We know it as the Hope Diamond. The rare blue diamond turned up in London about 20 years later, smaller than before, but just as stunning. How it got to London remains a mystery. A mystery that supports either my discounted Brunswick theory, his daughter would actually eventually become Queen of England, or a secret pawning of the jewels is possible here. Regardless, it eventually found its way into the Smithsonian here in the United States, where it's on display to this day. And for the skeptics, in 2005, it was proven to be the cut-down French Big Blue at long last solving that mystery. Well, after all that, the rest of the history of the building is perhaps a little less exciting. It seems that it took a while for what was left of the movable goods to actually be moved away from what at that point was now the Ministry of the Navy, who officially had settled in by 1799. The Navy did their thing from that point until the move in 2015 to the 15th Arendossement to join the other branches of the military in one unified location. That building is apparently nicknamed the Hexagon, both in reference to France's shape and its nickname, and a bit of a wink toward the American Pentagon. One very major event, though, did occur at the Hotel de la Marine that is still commemorated to this day. On April 27, 1848, the formal decree abolishing slavery throughout France and France's territories was signed in the building. You can still see the actual desk on which this momentous event occurred at the museum in the Salon Diplomatique. The foundation of the memory of slavery is also located in the building, which is a really cool connection, I think. Incredibly, the foundation is not directly part of the Ministry of Culture, a first here on the podcast, though there does seem to be an indirect connection through their foundational agreement. I swear I'm not a covert agent of the ministry, I promise. As the move to the Hexagon building was planned, the state began trying to figure out what to do with the building. There seems to have been some possibility of it being put up for sale before public outcry forced the state to reconsider. The Louvre and the Centre Monuments National, or the CMN, were both up to bat until the Louvre decided to focus on its own on-site projects such as the Big Pyramid renovation, according to the newspaper Le Monde. The CMN then was given full control of the building. They oversaw the creation of the museum spaces, the restaurants, the gift shop, and the non-public spaces, such as those used by the Foundation for the Memory of Slavery. After a long time under that scaffolding, if you'd been in that area, the museum finally opened in 2021. So what exactly is in the museum other than the abolition desk and the gift shop? There are basically three main spaces, a set of private apartments decorated in the late Louis XV and Louis XVI or pre-revolutionary styles, and frankly, they look stunning, absolutely gorgeous. There's also a set of similarly restored and decorated public spaces, including that Salon Diplomatique that was mentioned, and unrelated to the building's history, the Althani Collection. 
This is the personal collection of the Qatari Sheikh Ahmad bin Abdullah Altani. The collection contains artifacts spanning thousands of years and is managed by a foundation that also focuses on exhibits, publications, and lectures. Before landing in Paris, the exhibit had been temporarily available at such museums as the Met in New York and the V&A in London, and it will be in Paris for at least the next 20 years at L'Hôtel de la Marine. As far as I know, the foundation is not at all managed by the Ministry of Culture. It is a private uh, foundation. I cannot wait to see this museum, you guys. It's going to be amazing. Before we let the story go, we have one last question, right? What happened to all of the goods in the Royal Repository? After the official repository was finally closed under the Directoire in the end of the 18th century, Napoleon, as First Consul and, you know, professional collector of stuff, he put the band back together in 1800. This would help him with his extensive construction works at his many palaces. A new empire, in his opinion, needed new stuff— or at least old stuff refurbished to new tastes. In 1870, after a few regime changes, the collection was renamed the Mobilier National, which is the name it retains now, and you guessed it, it was eventually placed under the Ministry of Culture. Their collection and responsibilities also include the heritage manufacturers uh, such as Sev Porcelain and the Gobelin Tapestries Factory, so check out the link in the show notes for more. The crown jewels, however, were not kept. They were largely sold off by the Third Republic in 1887. Apparently, the jewels were seen as a threat to the Republic, an unwanted connection to monarchy and the monarchists who violently wanted to overthrow the unstable government of that Republic. Interestingly, Tiffany and company were the most successful bidders at the auctions, raking in the largest selection of the jewels available and, of course, turning around and selling them. If you want to see the Hotel de la Marine Museum, you have a few options to choose from. You can take the Grand Tour. This is a full meal deal tour with the private apartments and the public spaces. Or you can take a shorter and cheaper Salons and Logias tour, which grants you access to just those public spaces, so no beautiful private apartments. Both tours do include access to the Altani collection and an audio guide that they've named the Confidants. Sounds intriguing. As of right now, in April 2022, the Grand Tour comes in three flavors. There's original, family, and one focused exclusively on the Age of Enlightenment. The Salons and Logio Tour has only original or family flavors. There's no specific themed version. The museum is covered under the Paris Museum Pass, but right now it looks like the pass only covers that shorter tour. You'll need to pony up for the larger tour if you want to take that. A reservation is recommended and may be required at the time that you go, so make sure you check out the link in the show notes to plan your visit. If you want to check out what's left of the crown jewels, they are available in the Louvre, which is also covered by that museum pass and does require timed entry. Thus, our exploration of the history of L'Hôtel de la Marine and the curious case of the crown jewel heist draws to a close. What would you have done in the chaos of the terror? Would you make a break for it or would you join looters? I personally would have been on a boat or a horse long before 1792 if I could swing it. I have no interest in sticking around when the guillotine's involved. 
Thank you for coming along on this ride. As always, full show notes, resources, and so much more are available at parisgoneby.com. If you liked what you heard, please be sure to subscribe on your podcast app of choice. Give us a review and a rating if you would, please. It helps so much. Thank you again for listening and have a great rest of your day. I'll be on top. Thank you.